0: My name is Katie Klein and I'm a high school student involved with the Austin Climate Coalition and today I'll be interviewing Dr. Russell Mittermeier who is the Chief Conservation Officer at Global Wildlife Conservation and a world leader in the field of biodiversity and tropical forest conservation. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Sorry,
1: could you hold on just for a second? Oh, i have yeah. a call coming from
0: Paris and Florida. Oh wow, okay. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, I can kind of hear you. It's the volume's fairly low, but I can hear you. Adds right. so, mm-hmm. and it stimulates the trade and uh, the trade in primates. So I I used to use pictures like that, and I've been criticized for it. So I stopped doing it, and it's kind of a growing movement within the community. So. We really need to, uh, you know, I told uh, Rob Shoemaker that if he could at all find another, another photo, that it would, be, it would be better
0: because I think you will be criticized, uh, he will be criticized, I will. So, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It really means a lot to me and the rest of my peers at the Austin Climate Coalition. I know, obviously, you're a very busy person, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. But I was hoping that you could start by introducing yourself and talking a little bit about your career as an extremely prominent primatologist and like your work with global wildlife conservation.
1: Okay, well, thank you, thank you for this opportunity. It's uh, it's great to be able to to speak to this group. Um, <clears throat> my career goes way way back, uh, really, to when I was a little kid. Um, I grew up in first in New York City, in the Bronx, in Brooklyn, and not a great place for wildlife. But my mother, who was a, a German immigrant, housewife, she really liked animals. She liked wildlife. And she would take me all the time to the Bronx Zoo and the American Museum of Natural History just about every week. So I saw a lot of stuffed animals. I saw a lot of uh, living animals in the zoo. And that stimulated interest in wildlife in me as a, as a little guy and i also learned uh i also very early on came into uh contact with the legend of tarzan and that had an enormous impact on me it was the comic books the the books the movies everything and when i was little i decided that i i really wanted to be tarzan and hang out in the jungles of the world and when i my mother tried to enroll me she did enroll me in uh, catholic school um when I was six years old and we had a, a meeting with the, uh, the head nun and they she asked me what my name was. And I said, my name is Tarzan. And uh, I said uh, and she said, you can't we can't call you that. And I said, well, if you don't call me Tarzan, I'm not going to go to your lousy school. Um, my mother pulled me outside and did a little disciplinary action and then uh, they wound up accepting me anyway. But a few months later, they asked me what I wanted to be. And I said, Jungle Explorer. So very early in my life, the the stage was set for doing what I do. And then when I went to uh, high school, junior high school, high school, I spent a lot of my time. We moved to Long Island and I spent a lot of my time collecting reptiles and amphibians because there weren't too many non-human primates on Long Island. And then finally, when I got to uh, college at Dartmouth, I got into the field of anthropology, which at that time, uh, branch of anthropology, first called physical anthropology and then biological anthropology, started looking at the study of primates to uh, increase our, our knowledge of uh, human evolution. So I got into studying primates. I spent nine months in Europe, traveling around to 18 different countries, mainly visiting zoos, mainly going to see the primate collections in those uh, zoos. That stimulated my interest even more. And then I got into... Uh, Graduate school at, at Harvard uh, with a professor named Irvin DeVore, who was one of the early, was one of the pioneers of research on baboons and how baboons could teach us more about um, about human evolution. Uh, and after I, I graduated from uh, from college, I spent a, a three months traveling around South America, almost all of the South American countries, and visiting. People who were working on wildlife and particularly on primates, and and really learning much more about uh, about uh, the different questions, the different species that uh, existed in places like Amazonia and the Atlantic Forest region of Brazil, and I decided to really focus on South America uh, for that early part of my my career, and uh, I wound up doing my research on the monkeys of Suriname which is a small South American country uh, north of uh, north of Brazil it's part of the Amazonian region and uh, I studied how eight different species uh, interacted with one another and at the same time how primates what the interactions were between human communities and non-human primates hunting them for food and, and so on and so forth and once I Completed that, I got my PhD in uh, 1977. I was fortunate in that I was able to right away get a position with um, funded by the World Wildlife Fund to do a survey of uh, primates in the Atlantic Forest region of Brazil, which is one of the highest priority areas in the world for conservation in general and for uh, for primates in particular. And I started a career at World Wildlife Fund that lasted for about 11 years where I started out as director of the primate program and eventually wound up as the uh, uh, vice president for science and also with a strong geographic focus on Brazil, the Guyanas, which includes Suriname and the island of Madagascar, which I, I visited in the mid 1980s because it's the highest uh, priority for primate conservation uh, in the world. And uh, because of my interest in primates, which are 90% found in the tropical rainforests of the world, I got more and more interested and involved in, in uh, the conservation of tropical forests in particular. And of course, tropical forests are the, the richest terrestrial systems in terms of biodiversity on our planet. And towards the end of uh, the 80s, um, I learned of a paper that had written by my colleague uh, Norman Myers, Uh, talking about biodiversity hotspots and he initially looked at uh, the top 10 hotspots on the planet where there was a great deal of extinction risk and also very high levels of endemism that is species of uh, of plants and animals found nowhere else and i immediately connected with that concept i got in touch with him had an interchange uh, with him on other priority areas he did another paper a couple of years later that um, upped the uh, number of hotspots to 18 and in the interim back in 1989 I decided to move from World Wildlife Fund to Conservation International where I became the the president and I stayed with that organization for 28 years and we used the hotspots as a central focus for our conservation activities at Conservation International. We had a number of fundraising campaigns, around the hotspots and wound up raising about $2 billion for hotspot conservation. And um, we updated the list first to 25 hotspots, then to 34, and now we're actually up to 36 of these biodiversity hotspots. And just to give an idea of how important they are, uh, what remains in the hotspots, they've they've been uh, really devastated over the past uh, century and have lost about 90% of their original natural vegetation. What remains in the hotspots is only a little over 2% of the land surface of the planet. And yet in these areas, you have more than 50% of all plants and more than 40% of all vertebrates as uh, endemic species found nowhere else. So there's an enormous concentration of unique life forms found in what remains of these hotspots. So obviously from every perspective, if you're interested in conserving life on earth, they're a major priority. And I focused a lot of my career on that. And then um, a little over two years ago, I met uh, with Wes Seacrest, who I had known earlier uh, from a number of projects we did together with uh, Red Listing for the International Union for Conservation of Nature. And I was really excited about um, the philosophy of global wildlife conservation, the fact that it was a bunch of young people uh, really, uh, superstars working in the conservation field. And, and we had about a year long discussion about what I could do at Global Wildlife Conservation. And then at the end of, uh, 2017, I decided to make the shift after 28 years at, uh, Conservation International. And I became the, uh, Chief Conservation Officer of, uh, of GWC. I should also note that, um, in terms of primate conservation in 1977, I was chosen to be the chair of the primate specialist group of the Species Survival Commission of uh, the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Uh, The Species Survival Commission is the largest network of uh, volunteers working on species conservation in the world. It has about 160 different specialist groups and uh, something like 9,000 members. It's the greatest body of expertise in species conservation in the world. And I uh, uh, I became chair of that primate group in 1977. And I'm still the chair, I'm the longest running chair in the entire uh, commission. So uh, that also was a very important uh, position for me because it enabled me to grow a huge network of primate conservationists uh, around the world. And um, in relation to um, climate issues, um, we know that that. Tropical forest conservation and restoration is really at least 30% of the solution to climate change. It's the most uh, uh, cost effective, doesn't cost that much to do it relative to all the other things that we have to do and it's one that brings many other benefits as well so it's really a a win-win situation protecting these tropical forests and restoring them protects all of these all of this biodiversity that exists in these forests protects critical watersheds it uh, sequesters a huge amount of carbon and it's also very important for indigenous people because many of the world's indigenous people uh survive in these uh, in these tropical forests. So here I am at this point, uh, continuing to do this work um, and hopefully can continue to do it for another maybe 20 years. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs>
0: that's incredible. Yeah. You mentioned Suriname and Madagascar, but is there any other place? I believe you visited something like 169 or 170 countries. Um, right. Is there any place that's really resonated with you or that you keep going back to just because there's so much there
1: well I've, I've focused on many of the the countries in the tropical region and specifically those that either have high diversity of primates or uh countries that have a large number of of uh, endangered primates but number one country for me has always been brazil brazil has the highest number of primate species in the world by far it also has by far the largest area of tropical forests left on the planet and has a number of very important um, uh, biomes. It has the Amazonian forest, which is the biggest uh, rainforest left on Earth. And Brazil alone has about 60% of the Amazonian forest. And then it has this um, Atlantic forest region of Eastern Brazil, which is one of those biodiversity hotspots, which has lost uh, about uh, 90% of its original uh, cover and has something on the order of 25, 26 species of primates that are found nowhere else. So Brazil is my number one country, and I have never missed a year going to Brazil since I first started going there in 1971, which is 49 years ago. Okay. And uh, number two would be uh, Madagascar, because Madagascar is the second uh, highest primate diversity on Earth, <clears throat> about 100, uh, 110, 111 species of lemurs. This is a group of non-human primates that's found only on Madagascar and nowhere else. And Madagascar has the highest number of threatened species. About 90% of the lemur fauna of Madagascar is either endangered or critically endangered. And it's lost at least 90% of its original uh, natural forest cover. So uh, given how unique the fauna is there, and it's not just the primates, but particularly the primates we consider to be the number one primate conservation priority on Earth. So I focused a lot of attention there. I go there just about every year. And then I focused a lot of attention on the Guyana Shield region of uh, northeastern South America, particularly Suriname, but the Guyana Shield includes also Brazil, Guyana, French Guiana, uh, Suriname, and and, um, the southern part of Venezuela, and the little piece of uh, Colombia. And this is the most intact rainforest left on earth if you're looking for primary forests you know, intact forest systems with very few people where we 're likely to have rainforest still fifty years from now one hundred years from now, if we really get our act together, this is the the number one priority area for preserving large intact areas of forest. so those are my three major focal areas, but in any given year i 'll go to you know twenty different countries or i don 't know if i 'll get to that this year because of the travel restrictions, but usually I'll go anywhere from 15 to 20 countries in a year, looking at different conservation projects, um, setting up networks, you're encouraging young people, especially people from the tropical countries, to to carry out their uh, to carry out their work and to to develop uh, careers in in conservation.
0: Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah, you mentioned uh, being excited to work with like young climate activists and young people interested in the environment what would you say is like what advice would you give to um students young people interested in the kind of conservation work that you do
1: well first of all if you love wildlife if you love conservation if you love natural areas pursue your dreams i mean do everything possible to develop a career in this business because it is a, a growth industry. We're going to need more and more people working in conservation in the years to come because if we don't, we're going to have some very serious problems on this uh, on this planet. In terms of what you should study, I mean, I always encourage people to study biology because if you're going to work on living creatures, you need to understand the underpinnings of, uh, of the biological sciences. Uh, but I also encourage them to take other uh, courses that I never took, such as economics. I had to learn about economics, you know, basically on the street. I, I never had a, a formal co- course in economics, political science. And I always encourage people also to learn languages. I've focused a lot of attention on, especially in my college career, on, on learning languages. Because if you know the language of a particular place, you have a great advantage over someone who just comes in and always needs translation or or makes it necessary for uh, colleagues from these countries to uh, to speak english i mean even if they can speak english they greatly appreciate it when you speak their language and my focus in terms of learning languages i was lucky i grew up bilingual speaking uh, german because my my parents came from germany but then i focused on learning the colonial languages in addition to english which was a colonial language french spanish Portuguese because with those languages you have access to a very large part of the world especially the the tropical world because the main colonial powers were um, the British the French uh the Spanish and the, and the Portuguese and to some extent the Dutch and I also can speak some Dutch so um I encourage people always to get at least some basic training in at least those languages. And if you're interested in others, some of the more difficult ones like Chinese, um, also make that effort. Don't mm-hmm. just be someone who can only speak English and nothing else.
0: That's definitely important for sure when you're traveling to different countries, learning knowing the language of the people and trying to connect with them that way. Um, Drawing on what you said earlier about travel restrictions and kind of the current global situation, I'm definitely curious on your take on the global pandemic and how habitat encroachment kind of plays a role in the escalation and the development of the disease.
1: Well, I, I've written a, a I wrote a blog a little while ago um, called uh, the Human Meat Market Theory, pointing out that you know as species become more abundant over the course of evolution, parasites and predators evolve to take advantage of this huge source of protoplasm, this huge source of, of meat. And we've become such a, a an abundant species that we're really a target for um, both predators and parasites, but we're not going to see the rapid evolution of predators like saber toothed tigers or lions or bears or whatever, because um They have similar generation times and we can see them coming and you know eliminate them but the pathogens these different uh, viruses and bacteria and everything else out there evolve very rapidly they can jump hosts very quickly and so with our increasingly large human population and the concentration of people in densely packed urban areas Uh, you're going to see more and more of uh, this sort of thing emerging if we're not careful. And it's especially risky when you have uh, these bushmeat markets, as you have in China, Wuhan, everywhere else in China, Central Africa, West Africa, where you're taking animals out of the wild, where ordinarily we wouldn't have contact with the parasites, with the pathogens that they have, and having those uh, jump to us, which is exactly what happened with not just COVID nineteen, but with SARS, with MERS, with Ebola, with um, uh, all of these diseases that have emerged from uh, kind of the misuse of the of the natural world. So we certainly need to uh, stop this kind of consumption of wild animals. And also, we really have to, you know, I. I was not ever a vegan growing up or a vegetarian, but more and more now I'm seeing the need to basically become a vegetarian um, and seeing the need to move away from this enormous domestic uh, meat market that we have. I mean, if you look at the mammal biomass worldwide, the total biomass of all mammals, 60 percent of the mammal biomass on the planet is are domestic animals. Uh, mainly cows and pigs, we are only 34% and growing and wild mammals are only 4% and declining. So not only are we um, potentially a, a source of, of these parasites and pathogens or or a place where they can develop very quickly, our domestic animals are also a potential source, swine flu, uh mad cow disease, all of these things that we've seen in the past. So we have to really change our behaviors uh, pretty dramatically over uh, over the next few decades to prevent more and more of these kinds of outbreaks from happening.
0: Definitely, yeah. This is kind of in a different direction, but in the past, have you had to coordinate with local governments and politicians in order to increase the effectiveness of your conservation efforts?
1: Oh yeah it's a non-stop uh, political process. I mean conservation uh you'd like it to be all field biology going out and doing cool things and looking at animals in the wild but I find that a lot of what I do is interacting with uh, uh politicians and business leaders and other other people decision makers um at various levels. I mean I've met over the course of my career with at least 50 presidents and other heads of state, many, many ministers, business leaders, uh, local community leaders, tribal chiefs. I mean, you have to engage at all levels with all sectors if you're going to be effective in this business, which is why I said it's helpful to learn some political, take a course in political science as well, because again, that's not a course that I ever took. So I've kind of had to learn it on the fly just by you know being out there and and school of hard knocks um, learning how important this is and, and uh, uh, meeting with these people in, in many different uh, contexts. But, yeah, that's absolutely an essential component of, uh, of conservation if you want to be effective.
0: I guess to kind of wrap everything up, as a result of your experience, would you consider yourself a climate optimist or realist or even a pessimist?
1: Well, I'm by nature an optimist. Um, I always have been an optimist, and I've always had a very positive attitude towards life. I mean, like even with this situation now, even though I travel ordinarily, and have for the past 50 years traveled about about 80 percent of the time, this crisis hit, and I said, okay, well, just kind of regroup, and and I've got a lot of work to do at home. I've got a lot of backlogged uh, things that sometimes backlogged for decades. So. I'm just going to change my mindset temporarily and focus on what useful things I can do by being based for the past couple of months and presumably for the next few months at home. Um And I think in this business, if you're not an optimist, you're going to be very, very frustrated because there are constant opt- obstacles and challenges. But, you know, you can get around everything. So I always I always regard obstacles not as something that prevents me from doing what I want to do, but just as a challenge and, and intellectual uh, exercise to see what I can come up with that uh, takes me to the to the next level or diverts me around these uh, these obstacles. But yeah, I I believe that we can if we set our minds to it. There's nothing that we can't achieve. And and when I have colleagues that are pessimistic, I I try to get them to change their mindset. But I think it's kind of a you're kind of born with, uh, uh, or early in life, develop these these attitudes. And, and if you're uh, an optimistic, positivist person, then that really drives a lot of what you do. And if you see everything as uh, the glass being, being half full, I mean, that's just going to be your nature. And there's not much, I don't think there's a whole lot you can do about
0: it. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but thank you so much for speaking with me. It really means a lot and i hope you have a great rest of your day and stay safe (laughs) yeah
1: thank you and and uh say hello to your the rest of your family
0: of course thank you bye okay welcome to austin climate coalition's one world our coalition podcast dedicated to climate crisis and reform we interview guests and discuss their stories with their own climate advocacy and other topics revolving around climate change Thank you so much for joining us
1: into this week's episode with our host, Katie Klein, with special guest, Dr. Russell Mittermeier.